Today, we're going to start a new series. Uh, we're in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're calling it Get Back to Where You Once Belonged. It's going to be a very appropriate series for the first of the year kind of uh, things that we like to talk about. Today, we're in Ezra chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. The topic, God moves both King Cyrus of Persia and the Israelites in exile to build a second temple in Jerusalem. The title of our message, Something in the Way He Moves. It's like a Beatles theme, I sense, right? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to now dig into your word. It is the first of the year, Lord, and it may be arbitrary, but we think about where we are, where we want to be, and I think these are the perfect books to study in respect to that. So open up our hearts and eyes to everything you have for us in and through them. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. If you didn't know it, here are the top three New Year's resolutions for 2019. Number one, 71% of Americans surveyed resolved to diet or eat healthier. Number two, 65% resolved to exercise more. And number three, 54% want to lose weight. I'm good with all of those. I say, let's make America healthy again. Whether you made a resolution or two, if you're in Christ, you probably have some inclination to be more spiritual in 2019, whatever that means for you. I think that's good. I have no criticism of that. But I will say this, for a believer, it might not be so much about making a resolution for the future as it is about making a return to your past. The New Testament church in Ephesus substantiates this point. They were solid. Jesus commended them in a letter he dictated in the Revelation saying, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles but are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Those are fantastic spiritual accomplishments. I can see the believers in other churches resolving to, in the future, be as spiritual as their Ephesian brothers and sisters. That's not all Jesus said, however. He went on to say, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. While their works were good, what they really needed was to make a return to a former spiritual plateau that they had regressed from. Do you need to make such a return? Do I? That's a great question to ask as we head into 2019. We can answer it by taking a look at these Old Testament books, Ezra and Nehemiah. They tell the tale of Israel's journey, uh, or their return journey to Jerusalem after 70 years of exile in Babylon. As the Israelites were getting back to where they once belonged, we're going to be able to see if we need to return to a spiritual place we have left. I'll organize my comments about chapter one around two points. Number one, you see what it is like to be moved by the word of God. And number two, you see what it is like to be moved in your worship of God. Let's take a look at being moved by God's word in verses one through four. Now, obviously, we want to glean personal devotional insights for our own walk with the Lord. But we also want to read and understand these books in their original historical context. We don't want to be teaching things that the Bible doesn't actually teach. And in order to do that, you need to stick 
with the context. I say books, but I should tell you that many Jewish scholars consider Ezra and Nehemiah to be one book. It's not a big deal. You can file it away under interesting Bible facts that I heard. Now, we're picking up the story in the 6th century B.C. Because of their disobedience, God had uh, disciplined his people by raising up King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and sending him against Jerusalem. In a series of three invasions, the Babylonians defeated the Jews, destroyed their temple, and carried them away captive. Enter King Cyrus of Persia, also known as Cyrus the Great. He defeated the Medes, and his empire became known to history as Medo-Persia. Cyrus then easily defeated Babylon, taking the city without a fight. You can read a little bit about that in the book of Daniel. Uh, During a drunken party one night while they were being besieged by the Persians, Uh, the Persians diverted the Euphrates River from under the walls of Babylon, and the army was able to come through uh, without a fight and take over that city and that empire. The Jews in Babylon found themselves under a new government, and it was a tolerant government. In fact, Cyrus would issue a decree so the Jews could return to Jerusalem and rebuild. Several Old Testament books are involved, and I would recommend, since we'll have a lot of time going through these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, that we read all of these books that pertain to this important period in Jewish history. First of all, the historical books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther tell the history of Israel's return under Medo-Persian rule. Then the uh, prophetical books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi were written during this same period of time. Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of the remnant that returned to the land to repair and rebuild the city and its walls and its temple. The book of Esther tells the history of those who remain behind, who chose to not return to the land. The events recorded in the book of Esther occur roughly between chapters 6 and 7 of Ezra. There are a series of three returns to Jerusalem. Chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra describe the first return. The exiles were led by a guy named Sheshbazar. That was 538 B.C. Chapters 7 through 10 of Ezra describe the second return, led by Ezra, starting in 458 B.C. And the book of Nehemiah records the third group that returned, led by Nehemiah, in 444 B.C. So this all takes place over about 100 years, and it all began, oddly enough, with God moving on a non-believer. And so verse 1, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Stop there for now. God had commanded his people to let the land lie fallow every seventh year. They had refused. 490 years went by, during which they ought to have observed 70 of those Sabbaths. Thus, the length of their domination by Babylon lasted those 70 years. By the way, as an aside, you've heard me talk about this before, but uh, folks that want to, you want to be a seventh-day person, a Sabbatarian, that's fine. We have no problem with that. But when folks start to tell you that you have to worship on the seventh day uh, and that you're not really even a Christian if you don't, some go so far as to say it's the mark of the beast to worship on Sunday, that's a little bit too far. And what I always, one of the things you might ask them is how they're doing keeping the every seven year Sabbath. Are they taking off from work for a year every seven years? 
Or are they uh, observing the Jubilee year, the 50th year, as a year of uh, turning back all debts and releasing everybody from obligations? And the answer to those questions is what? No, <laughs> not at all. You can't just keep the Sabbath. You can't just say, I don't mow my lawn on Saturday and think you're keeping the Sabbath or just go to church on Saturday. You want to keep the Jewish Sabbath, you're going to go crazy trying and stuff. So don't come under that kind of a burden. Don't do it at all. Now, God told all this to Jeremiah, who had recorded it in the book bearing his name. Although captive, they had the comfort of Bible prophecy. They knew or they ought to have known the exact length of their punishment. In fact, Daniel, reading Jeremiah, came to the conclusion that it was almost over. They were promised a return to their land, and they were told that their temple would be rebuilt. Uh, we're going to talk again about this in a few minutes, but Christians face tough times in life. We looked at that last week, and as I said, we'll mention it again. But prophecy can have a tremendous hopeful effect on your life because God has made you greater promises than this. You've been promised heaven and all the things that await you there. And so uh, though there's great reason to be discouraged and depressed on the earth because of things that happen, greater reason still to have the joy of the Lord, the joy of his salvation. Now, the New King James Version says the Lord stood up, uh, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Other versions say God moved on him. I like that better for some reason. The word has the connotation of being awakened or aroused or of opening the eyes to something. How did God move King Cyrus of Persia? Well, in a remarkable prophecy, a Bible prophecy, Cyrus was mentioned by name. You can find it in Isaiah 44, verse 28, which says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be rebuilt, and to the temple, your fountain, or excuse me, your foundation shall be laid. Isaiah received and wrote those words more than 150 years before Cyrus was king of Persia. His name was in the Bible, uh, in the book of Isaiah, before he was born, and certainly before he was Cyrus the Great. Now, critics come along and they say, no, Isaiah didn't write that, and whoever wrote it didn't write it uh, before Cyrus. But their argument, seriously, their argument is because no one could have known that, and therefore it couldn't be true. And I'm thinking, well, okay, if you don't want to believe in God, then um, I guess that's your bottom line. But there it was in the Bible, a remarkable prophecy that was fulfilled. A first century historian, Josephus, records that Cyrus was shown these words from Isaiah. It isn't too far-fetched to believe that he was and that it was Daniel who showed them to him because Daniel seemed to have real insight into uh, Jeremiah and other areas of, of Scripture about what was happening with the Jews, not only in the contemporary sense, but also in the future. And so before he was even born, the God of Israel had called Cyrus by name it blew his mind. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine somebody come up to you and say, hey, I've been reading the book of Isaiah and your name, Jean Pensiero, is in there. It's not, by the way. I've looked many times. But <laughs> I don't need to tell you that Bible prophecy is able to move people. I was saved as a direct result of being moved by a movie highlighting the prophecies in the Revelation. And many times prophecy has been used as a evangelical tool to move on people. Prophecy promotes a readiness that will help keep you from regressing in your walk. 
and it can certainly inspire you to return to a previous spiritual place, especially knowing the Lord's return is imminent, that it could happen at any moment. The Lord's return, as we saw last week, it's imminent but unpredictable. So we don't quit working and we don't act like it's gonna happen you know, in a, in a way that we don't have to have goals and plans and things like that. But we do remember that it could and it will happen at any moment. Plus, look at the effect on the non-believing Cyrus. Uh, sure, he was named by Isaiah, but the word has power to open a non-believer's eyes to see that the sinner in need of salvation is them. The Holy, con- uh, Holy Spirit convicts them just as if they were being named on the pages of the Bible. Maybe you had the experience when you got saved, if you got saved as an adult, you went to some event or a church service or watching something on television and you felt like whoever was speaking the word was talking directly to you as if they knew secrets about you, as if your wife or husband had called ahead and said, hey, I want to I tell you some things. That's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I'm talking to you, as if your name was in the scripture. That's how powerful the word of God can be. Maybe you're here today and you're not a believer. The Holy Spirit is seeking to convict you of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come so that you can come into this great salvation, this joy. And then verse two, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. The proclamation of Cyrus is dated at 538 BC. It's a known date in history. Pretty cool for a pagan king to credit God with working behind the scenes. I need to tell you, however, that Cyrus was not saved. There's no evidence he ever got saved. He acknowledged many gods and thought of Yahweh as just one of them. He himself worshiped Marduk. God moved the spirit of a pagan king to accomplish his eternal purpose. Theologians call this kind of thing providence. They define it as that continuous activity of God whereby he makes all the events of the physical, mental, and moral universe work out his purposes, and that this purpose is nothing short of the original design of God in creation. That's a long-winded way of saying that God is involved in human history to bring it to his desired end. Now, as a footnote, I would add that we do not teach what some people call God's meticulous predetermination, but that in his true sovereignty, he's able to allow for our free will and still accomplish his original design. With regard to providence and free will, we discover each of the following three things in the Bible. Number one, God sometimes allows man to do as he pleases. He doesn't interfere at all. Number two, God sometimes keeps a man from doing what in his freedom he would otherwise do. And thirdly, God always overrules what man does to accomplish his own ends. Now that's all kind of philosophical, so let me uh, give you a, a better illustration. The book of Esther, which uh, pertains to this period of time, most of you remember that Esther was a Jew, but she kept her identity secret. She ended up becoming the wife of King Ahasuerus, I believe it was, and the queen of Persia. But nobody knew she was a Jew. And then this uh, guy, bad guy Haman, a precursor of Hitler, he decided, I want to kill all the Jews. And so they issued a proclamation that he could kill all the Jews. And so Mordecai, Esther's uncle, said, hey, (laughs) look at you. You're the queen. You can do something about this. God has raised you up just for this purpose. And Esther was like kind of freaking out. She goes, well, the king might kill me if I go to him unannounced. And she had a decision to make. And obviously, you know the story. She went in and prevailed and the Jews were saved because they issued a decree that they could fight back. 
But Mordecai says something really, really fascinating that pertains to God's providence and to what we're talking about. At one point, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, he says to Esther, you should do this, but if you don't, we will be saved another way. And you think, what? What other way? I don't know, but God knows. And so there's, a, there's an element there always of free will. It was Esther's free will decision. And if she decided to say, no, I'm not gonna rise up, then God would have done something else. Ultimately, God did what he did, overruling, and uh, we are moving towards the desired end of history. Verse three, who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord of Israel, the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place here he, uh, where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Two words describe the reaction of those moved, go and give. Some were moved and determined to go. There was work to be done on the site. Others were moved and determined to give. There were supplies and support that those who went needed in order to accomplish this monumental task. Going and giving are definitely signs God has moved upon a person. Now, it might be helpful to know that after 70 years, though they were captive, the Jews were comfortable and they were prosperous in their exile. They weren't slaves they were savvy businessmen. You can't think of the Jews as if they were in Egypt or even under King Nebuchadnezzar's rule, uh, but they were actually prospering. Believers tend to get comfortable in the world and with worldliness. We build houses and homes and careers. That's okay, but it can lead to a spiritual drowsiness, a slumber that we need to be aroused from. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you know this. You, you sometimes get drawn in too much to the world and and your spiritual life is dragging, and so we have to always be on guard. I mentioned that Haggai prophesied during this period. He uttered the famous rebuke, which is used by countless churches in their building fund guilting. He said, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruin? Eh, let's take that second offering now. But uh, <laughs> it's that kind of a thing. But, but that's, that's what happens. Having said that, without trying, we're not in a building project, so I don't have to worry about it, but having said that, this is what happens to all of us as Christians. We fall into kind of a comfort, especially in the United States. We're relatively comfortable here, I would say, right? You don't want to move to another country, do you? Everybody wants to move here. Why is that? Because it's a great place, and we're comfortable here. All the more we need to be on guard that we're not letting the world overwhelm us. Going and giving are your decision. You are free to do either or neither. It's a matter of your free will as you spend time with the Lord. So, but you can ask yourself the questions, however. Are you giving? The New Testament teaching on giving is that it should be willing, regular, sacrificial, and done cheerfully with joy. Yours either is or it isn't, and that's between you and the Lord. Are you going in our case, we'd understand that as being part of building the local church by serving as one of its members. You either are or you're not. Again, that's between you and the Lord. Going and giving, definitely possible to regress from them and therefore need to make a return. Now, second, you see what it's like to be moved in your worship of God 
God's sixth century people responded enthusiastically to his moving. It says in verse five, then the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all whose spirits God had moved arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. The Jews in Babylon were obviously mostly from the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, where you found the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Priests and Levites are specifically mentioned to remind us that it was to return to worship that God was stirring up his people. You'd need these guys to carry out the daily functions of temple life. Um, We went through Exodus, we saw that uh, all priests are Levites, not all Levites are priests, and only the priests the high priest and other priests can carry on the functions of the temple. Uh, Lay people from other tribes cannot do it. And so this is a reminder that you guys are going back to worship. And we'll get there. I don't want to blow this because it's an interesting point. But I'll tell you, it's kind of a preview. When they get back with the city in ruins and the walls in ruin and the temple in ruin, the first thing I would do was rebuild the walls. But the first thing God has them do is rebuild the altar so that they can worship. And so it's one of those times when the, God is, the foolishness of God uh, you know, defies man, but God says, you're gonna worship me and I will take care of the rest of it. And if you wanna go back and build the walls because you're afraid, that's, that's putting the cart before the horse. And so um, God is stirring up this, these people to worship. Verse seven, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Prince is probably just governor or leader. As I mentioned, Cyrus had a tolerant policy towards religion. He allowed conquered peoples to worship their own gods in their own way. He would ask those subjects to then call upon their gods to give him favor and to strengthen the gods of Medo-Persia. There's something archaeologists have found called the Cyrus Cylinder, where there's a lot of stuff written on this and um, about the reign of Cyrus and how he uh, operated. Bible commentators are split over the identity of Sheshbazar. Some believe it is a Babylonian name for Zerubbabel, while others believe they are two different guys. As we go into Ezra deeper, Zerubbabel will become prominent as the leader of this first return. In fact, the second temple that is built is commonly called Zerubbabel's temple. I think they're two different guys. At any rate, I like saying Zerubbabel better than Sheshbazar, so I'm glad it worked out that way. Zerubbabel is kind of neat. It'd be a great name for a kid, then you could call him Bubble or Zero or... Really? Zerubbabel? Yeah, I like that. Bubble. I'm going to start calling kids Bubble anyway, but anyway. When a foreign king conquered people, he raided their temple and took their idols to show that his gods were stronger than their gods. If somebody raided us, they'd take our iPhones and they'd parade them down the street. Problem with Jerusalem and its temple, they had no idols. And so if you're Nebuchadnezzar, you're in there thinking, all right, I guess I'll take a bunch of plates and cups and (laughs) here I come, what do you got? I got a silver platter. Well, you could have got that at uh, Best Buy or something, you know, I don't know. Anyway, these items are now returned. Verse nine, this is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives. That's some knife set. 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, 1,000 other articles. 
All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All the Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. The articles themselves are not the point, of course. The point is that they were being returned. They were being put back where they belonged. They would again be used in worship rather than simply being on display or used for some secular purposes. The Israelites returned the articles of worship. In the King James Version, they are called the vessels of worship. Now, I like that, right? Because immediately you think about us. We are compared to vessels in the New Testament who are members of a great house, the Uh, the the temple of God on the earth, the church as we gather together. And so we definitely have a point of contact devotionally with these verses. So what are the signs that we as God's vessels have returned to worship? Well, first of all, the temple vessels were carefully identified and inventoried. That reminds us that on the most basic level, you must be certain you are in Christ, that you are a Christian who is indeed a member of Jesus Christ's temple on the earth. We tend to skip over this Let's say you meet somebody new here on campus, and uh, you might even ask them, are you a Christian? And they're liable to say yes. Make that follow-up question, ask them how they got saved or where they got saved or to give their testimony. I do this all the time in pre-marriage counseling, which by now you're afraid to do with me. Uh, <laughs> but if you're a parent, you love this because when, you're, when your child comes in and and you're worried about their fiance, and then I'm the one that gets on the hook, and I say, hey, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Tell me about your relationship with Christ. Oh, I've, I've gone to church my whole life, which means Easter and Christmas. I said, well, when did you come to know Jesus Christ? Well, I've known him my whole life. Uh, is there a moment in time you remember you got saved? No, I feel like I've always been saved. Well, you want to step out of the room so I can tell your fiance to dump you? Because <laughs> I know he or she is saved because they got saved here. Hey, seriously, if somebody just today, if you're out in the cafe and say, hey, I've got a question for you. Tell me your, give me your testimony. You get excited. You'll go on for hours talking about your testimony in Jesus Christ. And so we need to make sure people are actually saved. Just because a person comes to church, even for years, it doesn't mean that they're saved. And so then the temple vessels would only be used for sacred, never secular purposes. This speaks to us of our need to remain separated from the world and from worldliness. Uh, As it's often summarized, we must be in the world, but not of the world. And so obviously, we're not supposed to move to a monastery. We're not supposed to go to some guarded compound where there's only other Christians just like us. We're to be in the world as salt and light and making a difference, but we get soiled in the world walking through it, and if we're not careful, we get drawn too deep into it. And that, again, it's an individual thing, a personal thing. We hear the warnings from the word, and then we should spend time with the Lord figuring it out. I I can't give you a list. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you what to watch, what to do, where to go, where not to go. That's what Christians always want. Can I see this movie? Can I eat at this restaurant? Can I do this? Can I do that? And the answer is, I don't know. I know you can't sin. You can't do things that are actually sinful. But whether you can do this or not, that's between you and the Lord. What we exhort from the pulpit is, at least pray about it, ask about it. Maybe, and come from the point of view that I probably am a little bit farther in the world than I need to be just because that's the nature of things. Staying with our vessel illustration. Do you know if you're a platter or a knife or a basin? I want to be one of the 29 knives, so there's only 28 left, by the way, so get in line. 
The church is an every member ministry. You're enjoined to discover your place in the local church. God has before ordained you to good works, but you are to pursue them, not simply remain passive. So here then are three more questions you can reflect upon. Number one, are you saved? Number two, are you remaining separated? And number three, are you serving the Lord's earthly temple, the church? Now, this dovetails nicely into last Sunday's message. We discussed the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that contains the verse, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. If you missed that message, I highly recommend you read it or you watch it. It expands on the understanding that we live in a very unique church age. We talked about Paul's uh, description of that age as a time when we would be suffering to fill up the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And and so as a result of that, um, we need to be ready at least with the understanding that it's a normal thing for suffering and tragedy and affliction, those kinds of things to come into our lives. It's a, a dispensation, an era in which we as his vessels will find ourselves being broken in order for God's treasure to be revealed as we walk in his resurrection power. And I mention that again because this is foundational for everything else we've said today. If you're not ready, if you don't think it's normal, you're gonna get derailed in your journey with Jesus. You'll quit asking the questions we're suggesting and instead you'll waste a lot of time asking, why me? And so you can hang out in a why me, and I've been there, I like why me, it's a nice room, it's, it's somewhat you know, comfortable uh, because you're, you don't have to do anything in there except why me. Or you can get over that and say, well, wait a minute, I, I'm, I'm sorry that it's me, I'd rather it be me than you, I guess, because I'm a Christian, and so this is normal, Paul the Apostle said it was normal, so why don't I ask these other questions and make sure that the treasure I have in this earthen vessel that's broken is actually being used to God's glory. We shouldn't think of being moved by God as something we are totally passive about. That's always the problem. We hear, oh, God moved on me, so the guy was just sitting there watching football, and all of a sudden, whoa, that's God. That can happen, sometimes in revival, but God is always moving on our hearts and minds. He's moving through his word and by his spirit whenever we encounter his word and his spirit. And so I can confidently say, without anybody falling down and writhing or speaking in tongues or doing anything like that, that God is moving in this place. Why? Because at least, it doesn't matter what I said, the word of God itself was read out loud the worship of God took place. And God says, I move in those ways. The idea is, are we allowing him to move on us? Our part is to be moved, and these questions, sincerely asked and answered, are the start. Am I saved? Am I separated? Am I serving? Am I going? Am I giving? 